Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. So in chapter eight, we talked about the necessity to change things up from an overly academic lifestyle, from too much focused study. Charlotte Mason suggested working with material as a change. This combination of an absorbing pursuit and a fascinating hobby would help protect from eccentricity or unworthy developments. Charlotte Mason emphasized handicrafts as a way to encourage children to use their hands in a purposeful way, whether by creating something useful for the home or something that brings beauty to the world or learning a skill that might turn into a lifelong hobby. Handicrafts are a wonderful way to spend time as a family where even the littlest learners can do meaningful work. But if you're like me and my family, between five kids, laundry, meal planning, work, podcasting, schooling, and everything else that goes on in a house like this, there's not much time to devote to figuring out which handicrafts to introduce to the children, or much less time to learn how to do them ourselves or to teach them to the children. So this month, we're very excited to introduce you to Rooted Childhood. Now, Rooted Childhood is a seasonal collection of handicrafts and ways to connect with young children through stories and songs. Each month of Rooted Childhood offers a curated set of stories, poetry, books, and eight simple handicraft projects, along with a detailed supply list, video tutorials, and beautiful photos for inspiration. Rooted Childhood will help you spend more quality time with your children instead of spending that time coming up with the next activity to do. Please visit rootedchildhood.com and use coupon code CHARLOTTEMASONSAYS15 for a special discount offer just for our listeners. All right, so we are recording this in a location that is not our normal spot. We are on vacation at the time of this recording with Crystal's parents in New York in the Catskills area. Crystal's nodding yes, so that means I'm right. So yeah, uh, if things sound slightly awkward, sorry. It's because John's awkward. Well, yeah, but I'm here normally, so if things sound abnormally awkward... (laughs) Sorry, it's, you set yourself up for that one. Well, I did, but I had to take it. Yeah, whatever. I had to. That's that's what uh, that's what you're saying, I guess. <laughs> okay, so we're doing chapter X. That would be ten. Again, we're working with our setup. It's awkward. We've covered that already, honey. Right. That's the whole year awkward thing. No, our setup is awkward. <laughs> I'm not awkward at all, ever. Never awkward. Okay. Okay, I think I'm good. This is chapter 10, Bible Lessons, Parents as Instructors in Religion. So it seemed to me as I was reading through and listening through to this that there are two sections to this, two main sections. There's the first section that is specifically about Sunday school and parents teaching their children about Bible. Okay. And then there is a section about the validity of the Bible and the theology to which we hold based upon miracles. I can see that. So it seems like there are two very separate, very distinct sections that, that interrelate. They're, they're both talking about the same thing and one feeds from the other, but they are two very separate issues and topics, which I thought was interesting. That she lumps it all in under Bible lessons. Yeah, that she lumps it all under under Bible lessons. As we started this, I was really excited for what parents should be teaching their children and how parents should be teaching and 
and what spiritual lessons. And I realized that we've talked about all of that. We've talked a lot about parents should be teaching their children spiritual things. Yeah. This is, this is not a new topic. And so this chapter specifically, I guess we'll figure out as we dive into it, but this, this chapter is not what parents should be teaching their children because she's already talked about that quite a bit. I think she also goes into the specifics of, you know, like read a New Testament book and read an Old Testament book. I think she goes into that more in volumes one and six where she's laying out the how-tos. Yeah, Where, which makes where sense. this is much more of a philosophy. Yeah. So this is the why should parents be the ones to teach Bible lessons, mm-hmm. not the here's how you teach a Bible lesson to your children. Right. So, well, it's the, it's the why, why should parents be the ones? Why aren't parents the ones? And what can we do about that? And then the validity of... Well, you have to have a, a firm basis to teach from. Yeah. Okay, so diving in, because that's just initial thoughts there that I, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting because most, most of these chapters are, are pretty succinct. They're pretty, they're pretty cut and dry from front to back. The, the topic is the topic. Mm-hmm. And this one seems to really take a hard left turn about halfway through. So. Well, one thing I want to mention right off the bat is a delectable education did an entire episode on Sunday school. It was episode 104. I did not re-listen to it as a part of thinking about this, but it was something I remember from the first hmm. time I was listening through. That'd be an interesting one stuff. to go listen to. So there you have it. Yeah. Well, and if you're a podcast listener and aren't listening to a delectable education like me, you should probably start. They have a they have a lot of good stuff. So I've heard from Crystal, who listens to it. So we come to our Edward Waverly again. We met him back in chapter four. He's in a book by Walter Scott in nineteen twelve. We talked about his moral sp- or uh, his mental sprawling and his habits of attention and the fact that he could have been a great man. Oh, that Waverly. That Waverly. That is Edward Waverly. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so is Waverly the the author or is Waverly the fictional character in the book? The fictional character. So we're <laughs> So she quotes a fictional character for the for the heading of this chapter. No, she's referencing which book it's in. It's in the book called Waverly. Oh, the book is called Waverly. Okay. But it's in the same section that she quoted earlier about his his uh habits of really? mind and stuff. Yeah. So huh. they're talking about the fact that he's not acquiring habits of firm assiduous, uh, firm and assiduous application, gaining the art of controlling, directing, and concentrating the powers of his mind for earnest investigation. So she's saying, you know, the history of England is reduced to a game at cards and talking about how the pendulum has swung, swung from too serious to too playful and talking about how students will love the means the games as opposed to the ends that makes sense and there's a quote further on from the one that she talks about it says whether were we to teach religion in the way of sport our pupils may not thereby be gradually induced to make sport of their religion wait say that again were we to teach religion in the way of sport our pupils may not thereby gradually induced, I'm sorry, thereby be gradually induced to make sport of their religion. So if we are to teach religion as sport, chances are good we're going to make light of our religion. Yeah. If we teach it as a game, they'll 
treat, it, treat as it as a game. game. So therefore, teach it with solemnity and respect, and it will be treated with solemnity and respect. Yeah. But, as she's saying here, not with the, the grave face, the der- deliberate tone of recital, not not to the other side well, and, of and that we've, pendulum. We've talked about that. Uh, we've we've talked about that several times and I wasn't, this wasn't something I was thinking we were going to, but we've talked about the language in the scripture being somewhat of a hindrance to young minds. Uh, we talked about that in the, uh, the recitation of the Lord's, Lord's prayer, the Lord's prayer, the these and thys and therefores. Mm-hmm. And she had a funny quip, and I, I don't remember what it was off the top of my head. Which art? Which art? Chart. Chart. Oh, here we are. Page 57. To make a child utter his prayers in a strange speech is to put up a barrier between him and his almighty lover. Hallowed. Chart. Mm-hmm. Trespasses. Thy and your. Yeah. Let children grow up aware of the constant, immediate joy-giving, joy-taking presence in the midst of them. And you may laugh at all assaults of infidelity, which is foolish to him who knows his God as he knows his father or mother, wife or child. So we we talked about it, that when we teach our children to pray, they should speak in terms that aren't archaic, but are natural and normal for them for everyday life. So she's obviously, there's a there's got to be a middle road somewhere where it can't be so archaic and, and high form i.e. we're not teaching our children Latin so they can say their prayers in Latin. For the sake of saying their prayers For the sake Latin. of saying their prayers in Latin. Although it might be really cool to learn Latin so that you can say your prayers in Latin or take part in Latin Mass. That would be pretty darn cool. But the, there's there's a center ground. We're also not teaching our children to be so lax and so uh, loose with their religion that it is just a game. Which, and I'm sure we'll talk about this even more as we keep going, is a common problem in many Sunday schools. Absolutely. I came across an article by Answers in Genesis. They wrote a book called Already Gone. And one of their conclusions is Sunday school is actually more likely to be detrimental to the spiritual and moral health of our children. In a study done of people who had been Sunday schooled and who had not been Sunday schooled. Hmm. Going to Sunday school was on the negative column. Really? Yeah. I did not fully go into it and read it because I had other things I was looking at, but I bookmarked it. (laughs) Right. That'd be interesting to dive into that study and see why. So Sunday school. Sunday school was started in 1751 in Gloucester. I'm sorry, Gloucestershire by William King. And by the 18, in the 1830s, Anglicans set up national schools, which was their Sunday school and day school. Mm. And Charlotte Mason was Anglican. Mm-hmm. And the Education Act of 1870 set up public schools in England. Well, wasn't, haven't we talked about the fact that the Sunday school was more than just teaching Bible to children? It was legitimately a school to educate children to read? Exactly. Because, like I said, the Education Act of 1870 set up public schools. So there was no public school before that. Right. There was only Sunday school for the poor people. Because we talked about the reduction in illiteracy in Germany? Switzerland. Switzerland. Okay. Yeah. Through 
Oh, now I'm blanking on all the names that we've talked about recently. But one of the guys she quoted, mm, I can't remember who it was, but one of the guys, one of the guys that she quotes at some point or name drops or something, he was the one who pioneered Sunday school so that children could learn how to read and reduced illiteracy in Switzerland from some astronomically huge number to a pretty sane low number. Yeah, almost almost eradicated it. And so therefore, it was, I guess, widely seen as a good thing. And so the public schools were instituted. I guess. Because of that. I don't know. That's that's speculation on my part. So at this point, they were kind of changing from being the only form of education to being a form of education and moving into kind of more of a... Sunday school is a place where children learn about God. Yes. Not the place where children learn to read. Yes. And also more of a social aspect. More of a, we get together and do things together also. Sure. So, that is a little bit of history on Sunday school. So, are we diving into the first section then? Yep. So, the first section, Sunday schools are necessary. She starts this out, that parents should make over the religious education of their children to a Sunday school is, no doubt, as indefensible as if they sent them for their meals to a table maintained by the public bounty. Public bounty being kind of the welfare state. Right. And then she goes on. But, side tangent here, sending your kids to the, for their meals to the table maintained by the public bounty, is that not what public school breakfast and lunches it is but what's the job of the parents with their children isn't it to nourish them and provide for them yeah and not depend on the choices and selections made by others right so uh, to, to be I yeah i mean there's into, yeah you, you can dive into to social welfare here as a thing to talk about i don't think we want to but you could certainly springboard to it from there but if we if we can agree that that is a bad thing to only rely on the government for all of your children's food and sustenance. And yet it is used and needed by the toil-worn and little learned parents. Right. So there is a place. There is a place for, for social programs. There is a place for for meals provided to children, and that's good. But it is not the best for them. Right. It's not the best for them. On the spectrum of good, better, best. Right. And if you have the means to provide for your children, you probably should provide for your children as opposed to letting the state do it for you. And by probably should, I mean you absolutely should do it as opposed to letting the state do it for you. And so she's making the case here that the two are as equally indefensible. Correct. Sending your children to Sunday school for their sole religious education is just as bad as sending your children to the state for their sole nutritional nutritional sustenance. Correct. And she goes on to say Sunday school is at present a necessary evil, an acknowledgement that there are parents so hard pressed that they are unable for their first duty. First duty goes back to page 54. The introduction of such primal ideas as shall impel the soul to God is the first duty and the highest privilege of parents. And that's where she goes into talking about how they should pray. And and also, on page 41, so even earlier, it is as revealers of God to their children that parents touch their highest limitations. 
Perhaps it is only as they succeed in this part of their work that they fulfill the divine intention in giving them children to bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So we as parents, our first and primary responsibility is to be revealers of God to our children. Yeah. And we have talked about that at length in multiple places. So we'll not, we'll not. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to pull that up. Yeah. We don't need to again. sit on it here, but that's what she's referring back to. And I'm glad you brought that up. Cause the that, first duty is to impel the soul to God. Yeah. And so, so we have th- Sunday school, the mm-hmm. parents who can teach their kids at home and substitute step in for those who can't. And she's saying that is good. That is necessary. Well, she says, here's the theory of Sunday school. That, that's what the theory okay. is. You're right. and, and whether good or bad, that is the theory of it. And she said, I mean, she, she has as the heading of this section, Sunday schools are necessary. And I think there are parents who send their, who for them it is necessary to have a Sunday school and to have, to have a place to send their children so they can learn about God. Because there are parents who don't have a, have a full, deep, rich understanding of who God is mm-hmm. and who are learning themselves. So then she comes into this example taken in Australia of a guy, of a reverend who has his own parents' union and has what I feel like sounds like an amazing program. Yeah. Where they strengthen and assist and unite mothers and fathers so that they can be to teach it and they will they the members the parents take the responsibility and they're given lesson plans monthly mm-hmm. and then at each month they come in and kind of, quote unquote get tested mm-hmm. they get catechized sounds very much like a co-op school yeah it does where you go once or twice a week to the school and you're given the main points of the lesson but then the parents are the teachers of that throughout the week. Mm-hmm. She says the scheme seems full of promise and it will strengthen the bonds of family life as well as grow up in a church that takes heed of you from baptism, from your infancy, all the way, not just to confirmation, but all the way through manhood and womanhood up until the end where it's, it's, it's taking the church and, and putting them in their right spot and, shepherding people from birth to death mm-hmm. which is one of the things they're there for well and and that's when you get the cross-generational conversations that happen and the cross-generational instructing and learning is that then the elders in the church not the official elders but the those who are old in the church who have been there for a long time they can teach and instruct because they've learned a lot because they've been around for the whole time Mm-hmm. And her her biggest takeaway was that parents themselves are recognized as the fit instructors of their children in the best things, and that they are led to acknowledge some responsibility to the church with regard to the instruction they give. Reminds me of any baptism ceremony or child dedication ceremony I've ever taken part in, witnessed, or I guess those are the only two options, either taken part in or witnessed is the officiant will always ask the parents to affirm that they're going to raise the child in the knowledge of Christ and in the tenets of the church. And that's always a part of that child dedication or that child baptism, whichever, whichever doctrine you, you fall under, that's, that's 
a main part of a child dedication or baptism. And then the question then is turned to the rest of the congregation and the same the same question is asked and the same responsibility is laid out for the rest of the congregation. But it's given first to the parents. Will you support these parents? Right. As they endeavor to do this. Right. It's not will you take over for the parents. You're supporting them. But it's the parents as the main the main teachers, those who hold the first responsibility to teach their children. So I pulled up from the Presbyterian Church of America, Book of Church Order. We're part of the PCA denomination. And what they said about Sunday school. And it's in chapter 28. The spiritual nurture, instruction, and training of the children of the church are committed by God primarily to the parents. They are responsible to the church for the faithful discharge of their obligations. It is the principal duty of the church to promote true religion in the home. True discipleship involves learning the word of God under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, both at home and in the church. Without learning, there is no growth, and without growth, there is no discipline. And without discipline, there is sin and iniquity. That's 1 Timothy 4.7. Part 2. The home and the church should also make special provision for instructing the children in the Bible and in the church catechisms. To this end, sessions should establish and conduct under their authority Sunday schools and Bible classes and adopt such other methods as may be found helpful. The session shall encourage the parents of the church to guide their children in the catechizing and disciplining of them in the Christian religion. Sounds pretty good. Sounds like what she's saying. Yeah. That the Sunday school is there to be an assist for the parents. And that the church is even today acknowledging 100% that it's the parents' responsibility aided by the church. Right. Not the church's responsibility aided by the parents. Yeah, but it's the parents' responsibility as parents to teach their children and instruct them in these things. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. It's interesting that, that the the PCA Book of Common Worship spells it out that way. And I would assume, and this is just me assuming, that other books of common worship. I'm going to correct you. Books of church order. I'm sorry. Books of church order. What's the book of common worship then? It's liturgy. That's the liturgy. Okay. So the book of church order. Excuse me. I would assume that other books of church order would have at least relatively the same mission statement, I guess. Charge to parents. Charge. Sure. Charge to parents. And to the church. Because in, in that... In that we are committed by God to the spiritual nurture, instruction, and training of children, and that the church is to help us. It mm-hmm. is it is the primary duty of the church to promote true religion in the home. Right. So, so far, we're pretty on the level with everything we've said up until this point of this book, that parents are the primary people responsible for teaching their children. And now we're adding the wrinkle that the church is there to assist. And if there's a Sunday school at the church, then that is to be an additional part of the child's biblical learning, but it should not be the primary location where the children learn. Primary and only. Primary and only. Or only. It shouldn't be either of those. So then they have their uh, version of the Barna group. The what group? Barna. They they do 
surveys and studies. Oh. And like like that answers in Genesis thing that I was mm-hmm, just talking about mm-hmm. earlier. The uh, Committee of the House of Laymen for the Province of Canterbury was appointed to examine the religious education of the upper and middle classes. I.e., we always like studying things. And have forever. <laughs> and come up with conclusions based on that. Well, and if we can study it in a broad sense, how can we use that knowledge to inform how we're doing what we're doing? Yeah. And quantify things. Yes. We need statistics. So this statistic is, for the most part, the education, the re- I'm sorry, the religious education attained by boys before going into school is far below what might be hoped or expected. And that even this standard thus ascertained to be far too low, is deteriorating. And further, that the chief cause of this deterioration is considered to be the want of home teaching and religion. So basically, we found that it's really bad. And we've also found that even with this low bar, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And the chief cause of it is the deterioration of the home teaching and religion. Yeah i.e. parents at home are not instructing their children in these things. So the ne- so then she asked the, the follow-up question, why? Why is this happening? I found it interesting she didn't use the word why. She asked two specific questions. What is the reason and what is the remedy? Well, the heading, though, is why do parents neglect this duty? Okay. Three questions. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I ignore titles sometimes. Yeah, you know. A lot of the times. So she does ask why. But the, the you're right. The questions she asks specifically in the text are those that you stated. What is the reason and what is the remedy? So no doubt there are many beautiful exceptions. Families brought up in quiet homes in the nature and admonition of the Lord. But if it is, as some of us fear, a fact that there is a tendency among parents of the upper and middle classes to let the religious education of their children take care of itself, it is worthwhile to ask. What is the reason and what is the remedy? So it's interesting that she's talking about up middle and upper classes. Well, she's already established that the poor people need Sunday school. Right. And it is necessary for them to have it because of the state of the parents. They're overworked. Right. Because of the amount of... And overtoiled. The, the little amount of time for leisure and family time for a lower class family is prohibitive to do these things. Well, in, in here she says uh, middle and upper classes, and earlier she said the more leisured classes. Which would be the middle and upper classes, which is absolutely true. Because if you can afford to have, if you can afford to keep one of your parents at home to be a primary educator, I would consider you to be a leisure a, in a more leisure class. Yeah. Now, whether that, whether that's true financially or you've just figured out how to make it work, those are those are very different things. So you might make you might not be in what's statistically considered a middle class or even upper class family, but if you've figured out how to be that leisured class, then I think I think it stands that that's who she's talking about here. So she then goes on to the what and the why, or the uh, what and the what, I guess, because mm-hmm. there is no why. What's the reason and what's the remedy? 
What's the reason? Societal claims, restive temper of young children, their impatience religious teaching, and much else. But these reasons are inadequate. She basically says those are excuses. Mm-hmm. You can't use those. Yeah, she says parents are on the whole very much alive to their responsibility. Perhaps there's never been a generation more earnest and conscientious than the young parents of these days. And I would say that in the right circles, that's still very much true. Everything's cyclical. Yeah. I, we, we seem to be having a revival in the United States, at least. And, and I'll say United States because I don't know about other countries. And uh, my apologies to that if you're not a U.S. citizen, because I just don't know. Yeah. Because I don't study your country. Sorry. But at least in the U.S. here, we're starting to have a revival of parents desiring good education for their children, good education not being available in the public sphere, and parents pulling their children out of public education and even out of private education. To do something else. To do something else. But they're not laying themselves out to teach their children religion before all things. Yep. The three R's come before religion. Reading, writing, arithmetic. Yep. Reading, writing, arithmetic. The only one that starts is reading. I've never understood that. That's hilarious. I always laughed at the arithmetic part because <laughs> arithmetic's not an R, but neither's writing. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just realize that? I just realized that. That's okay. I was home taughted. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> oh, I'm glad. It's good that someone does. So I think this is the start of where her hard left turn goes well because it's this it's the question of why why aren't parents teaching or i guess what what is the reason for why Whatever. why aren't the parents <laughs> teaching religion before all things they and don't believe in it this, as much they, they don't believe in it it's not of primary import for them it sounds like she's writing this specific chapter this lecture as almost a, a grandparent age early grandparent young grandparent i could believe it or i guess early grandparent or older grandparent because she's talking about you know, young parents of these of these days so so she's almost a generation removed yeah to have that perspective and so it would be her children's which she didn't have children but it would be her children's age that is discrediting the bible therefore they're not teaching her quote-unquote grandchildren age the bible right discredit thrown upon the bible the fact is our religious life has suffered and by and by our national character will suffer through the discredit thrown upon the bible by adverse critics that's happened uh and continues to happen and europe by and large has become uh post-christianity a post-christianity continent Again, generalizations. And the U.S. is on the way there. Yeah. Quickly. Very, very quickly. And so she talks about we don't give them, we don't come to the Bible with our the old confidence we used to have. And so then we don't show our children that it's easy to have confidence in this. And so we instead give them the aesthetic culture as should tend to develop those needs of the soul that find their satisfaction in worship. We give them something to worship because we have to worship something. Sports. Anything. Anything. But at this, point, at this point in the U.S., sports is a big one. And I, I know it is in, in Europe as well with, with soccer or football if you're from there. 
but sports is a big one. Academics it's, is another big one. Ithriel's spear is a reference I didn't know. It was from Paradise Lost, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Oh, okay. Ithriel is a an angel of some order, and his spear is a, it's a weapon that causes anything it touched to assume its true form. And so it's used in the Garden of Eden to touch Satan and show his true form. Oh, interesting. And so here she's saying the definite and searching young mind is the spear that's trying to expose the superstructure of liberal religious thought. Right, because if we take the whole superstructure of liberal religious thought, it breaks down. And, and we, try and, we try and break it down to its basic sense. It does break down. It's a flimsy habitation. It's a conversation. I'm going to name drop a very typical set of guys here. But uh, Joe Rogan was had Ben Shapiro on his show. And it was a fascinating interview. And at one point during the interview, Ben Shapiro, who's a who's Jewish, Orthodox Jewish? I don't know. He's, he's, a, he's very much a practicing Jew, wears the funny hat thing and does all that. Yamaka? Huh? A funny hat thing. Well, yeah, that's what he calls it. He says he wears a funny hat. Okay. There's a couple names for it. But anyway, he he was talking about conversations he's had with another guy, and I can't remember his name for the life of me. But talking about how this guy is a naturalist and his thought is that based on based on logical thought, we can get to morality if we just think logically about things we can find our way from logic to morality and ben shapiro is going no that doesn't make sense if you think logically about everything anything you become very selfish because well that's what that's what it ends up being and shapiro's whole stance is that if you if you take from the beginning that we are made in the image of god then morality just flows from that that we are unique individuals created in the in the identity of God, that we carry that identity with us, then we treat each other as if we carry the identity of God. And so therefore, therefore there's the superstructure of non-liberal religious thought, the superstructure of actual religious thought makes sense because it stems from something that makes sense that's outside of us that's declaring how we should live and how we should act towards one another but if you take that declaration and take it away from the external and take it to the internal then it just doesn't make sense and it doesn't matter how much you try and pick at it and try to make it make sense it just doesn't make sense so little example of someone who's smarter than me saying exactly what Charlotte Mason here is saying, that you take this liberal religious thought and you have to, you have to try and veer away from anybody trying to be critical of it. Because if anybody's critical of it, you're in trouble. Because it won't hold up to the scrutiny. Yeah. It doesn't hold up to the light of day. It doesn't hold up to Ithriel's spear, which is going to break it down to its, to its uttermost being. So sorry, long way around there to say that, this makes sense, and other people smarter than me agree with it, even to this day. So, kind of just moving on a little bit, mm-hmm. this whole miracles, no miracles, 
I feel is it's important, but I think it's also a reflection of the, I guess, in vogue debate of the time. Mm -hmm. Did miracles happen? We have the Jefferson Bible, which was in 1820. I wrote that down in my notes. Jefferson Bible. Which it was not (laughs) called a Bible. He called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And it was numerous sections of the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. It's notable for its exclusion of all miracles by Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections that contain the resurrection and most other miracles and passages that portray Jesus as divine. So there's that background that happened, what's that, 70 years before. Yeah. And then I feel like that is the the debate of the day, which is why she addresses it. That makes sense. Here. So eliminate the miraculous and the whole fabric of Christianity disappears. Mm-hmm. Basically, we have a God who can't do anything because if he can't do miraculous things, if he cannot work outside the realm of nature, then what's the point of praying to a God to do things that he can't grant. Well, and beyond that, if there is original sin, if we are sinful and he is holy and miracles don't happen, then we're screwed. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. And this is talking, again, the current debate of the time. Not miracles, but the resurrection of the dead. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection then not even Christ has been raised. Christ has not been raised. Our preaching's in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's not true that the dead are not raised. Sorry. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah. And no. you can replace that resurrection of the dead with miracles. Mm-hmm. If God doesn't have the power to miracle. do miracles, then what are we doing here, guys? So. What, what, what's, the, what's the point of all this if God can't do miracles? Yep. If, God's, if, if God is too much a natural being that he can't do anything outside of nature. And I liked this. It's forward to page 99. Uh, Natural law, as we understand it, has nothing to do with these issues, the issues of miracles. Not that the Supreme abrogates his laws, but that our knowledge of natural law is so agonizingly limited and superficial that we are incompetent to decide whether a break in the narrow circle within within which our knowledge is hemmed is or is not an opening into a wider circle where what appears to us as an extraordinary exception does but exemplify the general rule. So here's our little circle of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's something extraordinary that happens. Just a gap in that to a to the bigger circle of the actual laws of nature. Mm-hmm. And all we know is a tiny bit. Well, the funny thing is we see that even in natural science. We have Newton's laws of thermodynamics that hold true but those start breaking down in various places so you start approaching the speed of light and things get real wonky 
And so you have to edit those equations so that they work. Edit the law. You have to edit the law. But it's a law. They're the laws of thermodynamics. But they're wrong. And so in those circumstances, in those circumstances. And so as scientists found more circumstances where Newton's laws of thermodynamics were wrong, they had to append his laws to say, okay, in these circumstances where, yeah, under normal speeds, under normal velocities at normal distances from the earth, the, the exceptions are so negligible that it's not even worth thinking about, but you get into those into those fringe places and those negligible things become not negligible, right? So, so then Newton's laws are proven false, even though they're right. So I, I, even in natural science, we see it where we have laws and they break. And but is that a, a breaking of nature or is that a breaking of our limited knowledge of nature? And it's a breaking of our limited knowledge of our nature. And so as we learn more, as scientists discover more and do more studying and find out more things, they're finding the holes in the things that we know to say, oh, we thought that that was true. Well, now we know that it was mostly true, but now we know that that there's this other thing and, and this thing now makes it true. Well, now you find out the next thing and that next thing made the other ones only mostly true, but but actually not true. And so you have to keep adding on little pieces so that the reality as we perceive it is quantifiable correctly. And so I feel like she's kind of saying the same thing here, all except just in a, in a supernatural sense to say that we have this view of our natural life, but God is so outside of that that we can't understand it. But if we did understand it, it would be the same thing. Be like, all right, so here's the little circle of understanding. God does this thing. You go, oh, yeah, well, of course that can work because of these things, da, 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 da. Yeah. It's not that God's an unnatural creature. It's that it's that we're such limited creatures. Uh, page 44. Back to the science mm-hmm. of science of proportion. It would seem to be the part of wisdom to wait half a century before fitting the discovery of today into the general scheme of things Mm -hmm. because we're not yet able to tell if it's actually true Mm -hmm. or relatively true so she already talked about that and that's not the only place we've talked about this we've talked about it in a couple places and i'm not gonna even try and think about it but i know we talked about it in at least one more place because i remember writing newton's laws somewhere and i didn't write newton's laws on that page So we skipped over a quote by David Hume. He's a Scottish philosopher who was a naturalist, and he did not believe in miracles. And I want you to say this in your best Scottish accent. (laughs) (laughs) I can do different voices. I cannot do accents. I try. They all end up sounding Australian, (laughs) is what I've been told. No testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle. Unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. So she uses his phrase to support miracles, where he used it to discredit miracles. It's really interesting. Yeah, I kind of I kind of skip over a lot of this because, again, it's a debate of the day. Mm-hmm. So it's a, applicable, but only kind of sort of. So she comes up, there's a, another test. If we reverently compare human beings with 
human things with that divine. We say of a friend, oh, he would never do that, or that's just like him. Tried by this test, how unostentatious, simple, meekly serviceable are the miracles of Christ. Basically, she's saying, you know, in the context of who Christ is, his miracles, super commonplace. It's just, oh, you're sick? You're here. Now you're not sick. You can't see? Now, now you can see. To have all power and be as having none is a quote from a poem called Christ's Restraint by Richard Trench, who was an Anglican archbishop and poet. Hmm. She closes it out here pretty concisely. The question of questions for us is how to secure that children shall be well guarded in the scriptures by their parents and shall pursue the study with intelligence, reverence, and delight. By the time our children are reaching adulthood and they're being released into the world, we want them to have a desire to pursue studying the scriptures with intelligence, reverence, and delight, to be grounded in the scriptures, and to test everything based on the scriptures and the validity of the scripture, Yep. to run everything through that filter so that even when they go to college and or when they enter the workforce or when they meet people who have differing opinions and viewpoints as them, that they have a strong basis of knowledge and conviction that they're not going to be easily swayed. Again, going back to, oh gosh, what, what, whatever chapter it was we were talking about where the weak-minded are easily swayed by those who are persuasive. I can't remember which chapter it is off the top of my head. Chapter 42, the first unfair, the weaker side, they resent. Yeah, it's from back, to, back in chapter 5, Parents as Inspirers. Uh, how to fortify children against doubt. We want our children to have a strong basis in not only theology, not only natural law, but we want to teach them how to think. And this is a big part in teaching them how to think is how to view the scriptures properly and how to apply the litmus test of the scriptures to everything. One of the main reasons we're homeschooling is to provide the religious education our children should have that they're not going to get elsewhere. So that's one of the reasons we're homeschooling is to provide that framework within context of the church, within Mm -hmm. context of the catechisms, but to have that stuff be on top of other schooling that they would do it, it would add just, just add more to their day to be one more thing that they have to do. Whereas having them at home with us, we can incorporate it into yeah. our lives and just have it be a matter of a matter of course. You know, th- mm-hmm. this is what we do. One of the things I've been teaching Ian is, you know, what's the first thing we do? We read the Bible. Why? Because the Bible's the word of God. And it's what's right and what's true. So we do that first. We read the Bible first. If nothing else happens, we've read the Bible. And that's one of the things that drew me to Charlotte Mason is that everything is incorporated. Right. It, it's a part of what you do. And mm-hmm. you you can attempt to sever religion from Charlotte Mason. And you can attempt to make it a secular curriculum. But that loses its driving force. Yeah. And you'll still end up with probably a pretty darn good curriculum. Mm-hmm. I think the other side of that is that we're going to start with with Bible. We're going to start with Scripture. 
But then by starting with Bible and starting with Scripture, that's the constant through everything we do. And so when we look at natural science, when we look at biology, when we look at history, when we look at sex ed, it's all based on the prism of Scripture. And it all goes back to Scripture. So that when we're looking at these things and we're trying to figure out what the social structure is, what the what historical reasons for things happened, we can say we have a biblical framework for these questions and we get to teach our children how to think based on a biblical framework as opposed to when they come home we have to try and deconstruct what they've learned to then reconstruct it for them with a biblical framework and we can do that with whatever text it is not a christian lens text right the the school i went to used the Bob Jones materials. And it got kind of frustrating that every history page had, you know, a little section that said, oh yeah, this is how it relates to the Bible or Christianity or Jesus. And I was like, okay. Enough. Yes, it is all related. He is the author of history. But stop shoving it in my face and forcing it down my throat. Mm -hmm. But having, being able to teach our children through both secular and religious texts, we can provide that framework and that lens for them that it doesn't have to be provided for them. Mm-hmm. Well, and also help them to, to understand that you, you can learn from secular texts. You can learn from secular thoughts and scientists. You can read, you can read a paper by anybody and learn something from it. Yeah. And again, you run it through the lens of what you know, because you're strong in your own foundations and you learn from it based on what it's teaching you. And you don't just close your mind off to everything secular because, ooh, secular is bad. But you make sure that your base is solid. Mm-hmm. So that when you do dive into those things, you, you're set to, to know them. There's a, There are a lot of quasi-Christian self-help books that are out there that like to try and toe the line between Christian and non-Christian. And there have been and continue to be lots of televangelists and self-help preachers and even churches that are self-help type of churches. I'm thinking Joel Olstein as kind of the figurehead of that movement. But it's been around forever, where under the guise of church and scripture and God, you're going to just spout off things that make people feel good. And if you're steeped in what scripture actually is and you have a solid worldview, you hear the things that those people say and you go, mm, you're not right, you're wrong. Or you might hear, be like, oh, that was a good point. The rest of what you have to say is trash and garbage, but that was a good point. I, I can incorporate that. As opposed to if you're not strong in your in your convictions, you hear that entire sermon, you go, man, that guy, he really knows what he's talking about. I'm going to incorporate all of those things into my life because he sounded good. They, this is back to the chapter five. They go over without a struggle to the side of the most aggressive thinkers of their day. Yeah. And I, and I know we've talked about that before, but that's, that is, that's one of the major reasons that we're homeschooling right now is to provide our children with that framework for how to view anything they look at. 
Well, I think that's a wrap. That's that's this recording from New York, from the Catskills of New York. I don't think I really have anything else to say. It's other rainy. Than, other than that, yeah, it's rainy. It's kind of gloomy. But Crystal and I have both gotten a lot of sleep because Crystal's parents are awesome and have been able to take the, the children for extended periods of time. But yeah, so again, sorry if the audio quality is different than it normally is. Um, this room is very echoey. There's a lot of mirrors. It's really weird. It is weird. All we brought are mics and computers. And so we've got our table set up with a bunch of couch cushions to be sound buffers. And this room is still echoey as I'll get out. So it'll be interesting to hear what this recording sounds like. Also, if you guys are enjoying what we're doing, please let us know because it's kind of lonely and (laughs) we're kind of an echo chamber in ourselves. Yeah, we are. And we want to know what you guys are thinking too because we're not the only ones with opinions. Yeah, and if if we ever say anything that you disagree with, I'd, I'd love to know that. I'd love to have a conversation about that. I take that back. We are the only ones with opinions and they are the... Definite opinions on Shar. I can't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> yeah, we are the we are the epitome of Charlotte Mason thinkers because we've read through part of one of her books. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.